Welcome to Growing Up Fire with Jamie Coots. Welcome to Growing Up Fire, episode 22. I'm here with Sue Henry, chief of the Calgary Emergency Management Agency. That's even weird for me to say. I feel like Tom Sampson should be sitting in front of me. I'm happy that it's you. I'm happy that you're the next person in line. And and it's so exciting for me to have known you for as long as I have and to see your job progress up to the boss, the top dog. Yeah, it's been an exciting journey. I still look around for Tom and I still talk about uh, he's got a chief's car. And I still say all the time, can somebody go get Tom's car? I'm like, it's not Tom's, oh, it's God. yours. <laughs> it's <Yeah>. my car. <laughs> and so it's great. I haven't been here for a few years. So we're actually sitting in the Calgary Emergency Management Agency. I forgot how much I love this place. I forgot how exciting it is and cool it is and different from the fire hall. Been in here for some trying times, been in here for some fun times. And, you know, I'm always happy to be here, happy to be back. And thanks for doing this and being on the show. So Growing Up Fire is all about the journey. How do we start? How do we? And it's so different for all of us. Some people get drug into it, kicking and screaming. Some people are in it because it's their family business. Some people are just, hey, that would be cool. I should try that. And so for me and for everyone that's listening, it's only about 20,000 people, so don't panic. That's it's not right. a big deal. <laughs> You're used to like the city of Calgary listening to you, 1.2 million <laughs> yeah. people. So this is just like a tiny neighborhood in the corner. But is fire in your family or what got you started? You know, it, it's not in my family at all. I come from a math teacher and an engineer. So very, very logical uh, family folks. But I was at school at the University of Victoria and tree planting and tree planting sucks for anybody that's done tree planting. It's a great way to learn how to work hard for something, but it's not a fun career. And I walked by a gymnasium at university and they were doing testing for wildland fire. And I had my gym gear with me and went in and tested and passed and ended up getting a job in wildland fire. And it sort of started this this oh, whole journey for me. So that's super cool because I didn't even know you were a wildland fire to start it all off. I was in British Columbia. Nice, nice. So like this summer, as you watch everything burn down, you get a kind of special connection to watching everything that's happening there. And Absolutely. It's yeah. been useful for so many different things, just looking back, starting in that journey and... It's pretty crazy to watch what's happening. So you're walking by, you go through, hey, you should get this job. You get the job. You work at Wildfire for how many years? For four summers. And oh, the nice. first summer that I was there, I didn't even think about fire as a an opportunity. As a, a little girl, I didn't see firefighters on trucks and had never thought that that would be what my journey was. And my first summer was when Salmon Arm had their large fire and it burnt through the town in a wildland urban interface. And I got to experience what it was like from the wildfire side and never looked back and applied for Calgary. And it's like, we got the hook. Yeah. Reel her in. Nice. Nice. And so you're going back year after year, same crew or parts of the same crew at the same area. How was that? Did you like those parts? Was it, is there challenges in those parts or was it just good old summertime fun? You know what? I loved it. I worked at a place called Risky Creek. The building was painted the same yellow as the road markings on the middle of the highway. And it was in the middle of nowhere between Williams Lake and Balakula. We were on a small base with 20 of us and it became a little family and a great way to spend summers and see all over BC. So the old fire family, you'd have the helicopter there, you'd have the trucks there and yeah. everybody's just tight hanging out there all the time. You bet. Yeah. Oh, I love those little bases. I could name off hundreds of them that we've driven by and stopped at and, and been to through the wildfire. 
And I do love that piece of history where you learn those massive, massive fires, right? Like, you know, you go to a crowning wildland fire, you have never seen anything like that before, right? And you'll never forget the sights of that. Totally different perspective. It is. It's, right? uh, there's a certain excitement and I, I still miss that. I miss the smell and just wandering around in the early morning. And Oh, yeah. Oh, I'm just sitting here thinking about it. And I can just picture all the listeners that are wildfire firefighters thinking about, yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's it. Good. You finish up four seasons of that, and then you decide, I'm going to go and apply for the Calgary Fire Department. Yeah, I left at the end of my fourth season. I had applied during the summer to get on with Calgary and was successful. So left immediately from wildfire into starting at Calgary as a rookie. Wow. And, And so like the recruitment process, we don't talk much about that. On growing up fire, but we should, right? Because the recruitment process is grueling. It's long. There's pieces that are, there's not your average tryout, right? Your average job, you go there, you put your resume in, they say, hey, you got shortlisted, come in for an interview. That's kind of the end almost of those processes. Right? It is. And it's gotten a lot harder. This was, I'm coming up on 20 years with the city of Calgary. So it's quite a while back that I look at those processes, but I remember going through physicals and going through, as you said, the interview and having to travel back for those pieces and always wondering, were you going to have enough to get through to the next stage? So it's a very different process. Yeah. Did you get through on the first try? I did. Ah, nice. So you go to all those pieces. It's no shocker to anybody. It's male dominated, right? You go to the physical and there's probably a few women and mostly guys there. Was that intimidating for you or did the wild man thing kind of soften the blow on that? I think it softened the blow. There's no question it's intimidating to walk into a room and and not have had the chance to try the test that you're going to try. But for me, it couldn't have come at a better time if I think of wildland firefighting puts you in great shape. You're doing really hard work and slugging through the bush for hours on end and it it set everything up. And I had a family in the wildfire process that helped me train. And I can remember using the the old hose hanging towers out in the middle of nowhere to to practice and get ready for it. So certainly intimidating, but I I think the second we let our intimidations get in front of us, we've we've lost. And I get a lot of energy from walking into an intimidating environment and figuring out how to do it. I have this thing in my phone called sayings I love. So now I got to go back, listen to this again and add that to my sayings I love. Awesome. And it's true, right? And I think that there's so many, you know, I, I always talk about those people that will be passed while they're saying no by all the people that just say sure yeah. or yes or or hell yes, let's get it done, right? And how many opportunities you lose when you start at no instead of starting at yes. And so I love to hear those kinds of things. So you get through the recruitment process. That's it. You're going into the training academy now, right? And so, I mean, training academy is a big, incredible place. So what was that like? You know what? I still remember the first morning and wondering what it was going to be like walking into that room and who was going to be sitting into that room on the other side and how many people. And I was very fortunate at the time they were running small classes. So it was a class of 12 individuals. Um, You got to know them quite quickly. And it again, walking in, there was another female in the the class, which whether right or wrong, gave me an instant sense of of comfort and camaraderie. And, you know, she's turned out to be an incredible friend of mine, still public information officer for Calgary Fire. So we started at the same time and (laughs) it was sort of support each other and never look back. Yeah. 
it's always nice to have that one person that you can, right? Uh, I just started at Chestermere, 30-year career. You'd think I'd walk into a fire hall and not worry about those things, but this one captain there just happened to be there, kind of a few shifts right in a row, and you just build that bond and, and away you go, right? So it is nice to have that one person that you could be like, is this how it's supposed to be here? Well, I'm just seeing someone that looks like you, which is why I think it's so important for young girls. If they don't see female firefighters and don't see female uniformed personnel, they don't ever think that they could possibly do it. No, and it's fair. Like, you know, just before this, we were talking about, you know, the volunteer paid on call world versus the full time world, right? And and so I come from that paid on call world. I'm just used to that everywhere I went. There's people of all ages. So you could have a firefighter from 16 years old, junior firefighter up to 60 or 70 years old at a paid on call system. And we never really cared. And when we were recruiting, we never really cared. Man, woman, any of that stuff didn't matter. It was like, well, where do you live? What job do you have? Would they let you go if we called you? And if the answer is yes, then we want you. We don't really care anything other than that. And so it's super weird when you move into the career field where it's now somebody's making this their livelihood and their life. And, and you start to see different numbers of men and women than I'm used to in the paid on call world. So, yeah, to have one start at the exact same time as you, I could see why that would be. That right? was a nice surprise. Sure. Yeah. And you had no idea. You just walked in the classroom. No, just walked in and looked around and saw Carol at the time. And um, like I said, we're we're friends to this day. So it's been a nice... You could probably say there's other people that you know from that class that are still at Calgary and, and still moving Absolutely. on. But, but not as tight as that friendship, that yeah, which is awesome. So you get through the recruit class, which is grueling on the best day. And you get assigned. Do you still remember the first station you got assigned Absolutely. to? Absolutely. <laughs> 16 fire headquarters. Oh, wow. Right into yeah. the big show. Yeah. All the chiefs and deputies and everybody walking around. Uh, absolutely. Yeah, it was delightful. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah, it's like day shift at headquarters. That's an awesome place to start your career. Wow. And so do you remember any of the, like, you know, what are the most fond memories you have of working at 16 and starting out at the... You know, it's the people. I still remember the first call and I had, I'd been in the hall maybe 15 minutes and the tones went off. They went off for a building fire that turned out not to be one, but you still, I still remember that feeling of, oh my God, this is actually <laughs> real. I've, I've got this job, but it's the people. And, and even today, I keep in touch with a lot of those firefighters that were in that first station and, and they become very good friends of mine. So I absolutely enjoyed it. But I remember getting ready for the first shift and I'd been told when you go to the fire hall and you put on your turnout gear, everyone takes their pants off. And I remember calling my aunt, who's a human rights lawyer, and saying to her, well, what am I supposed to wear? Do I go buy sure. men's underwear so that when I <laughs> take my pants off, I look exactly like everybody else? And you, you look back now and think, that's what you were worried about? When you <laughs> All were, the things in Like, that, you could have yeah. been worried about so much different yeah. than that. Like getting killed? <laughs> <laughs> or something. No, we're worried about what underwear you got on. <laughs> No, and it is. And I think that that shows kind of how it's a bit unfair, right? Because the guys weren't worrying about that, right? They were just going there being guys. So <laughs> they were more worried about like, I wonder what time lunch is. Yeah. Was, do we eat lunch at 12 here? Or, yeah. So you go there. I remember 16 before the Renos, you had the big gym then. There's probably a big staff at 16. And there was. So you yeah. got to do some of the fun stuff, some of the competition, uh, the workouts and those kinds of things. Absolutely. And got exposed to lots of different trucks and lots of different activity. Not a ton of fire activity for that particular location, but lots of what other things there are on the job. 
Nice. So, okay, we wildland firefighting, recruitment into the Station 16. Where'd you go from there? I went to Station 12, which is in uh, Northeast Calgary. And then, yeah, from there, went down to number two. Oh. And fortunate arriving at two downtown, I spent uh, just about eight and a half years there after my rookie year. And uh, it was fabulous. You got to do, became a hazmat technician, a rope instructor. Got to do so many different things and go out on so many calls. Kind of like living the dream job. Uh, Absolutely. You're getting to do all these things that people just dream of today that take many, many, many years to get to today, right? So that's cool to get involved in so many different things at such a young age and get to come through like that. That's pretty awesome. I guess it's some of the story of how you got here, right? You got to lots of challenges in busy places and you can't be scared of hard work and work at station two. No, definitely <laughs> not. And I would much rather, I'm very much the personality that would much rather be busy and doing something, even if it is, you know, chasing alarms through the downtown and just the the exposure and the experience down there was incredible. Yeah. And I don't think that changes. I mean, you go to any urban center, right? Any big city in Canada and those downtown core fire halls are going to be busy, whether it's medicals, alarms, whatever's going on, they're busy backfilling each other, meeting up at calls. And for us, we get to stop lots of fire halls almost 400 now across the country and and so you really get to meet those the movers and shakers across the country and it's always the same and i always love it the same way right they're telling you they're ranking in the year for their engine across the country right so sometimes calgary wins sometimes toronto wins and it's no matter when you go there or what you it's they're going to tell you their ranking probably within the first 10 minutes i can win a bet every single time nothing changes as far as that stuff goes (laughs) i'm from station one and our engine was the busiest one in canada last oh that's very familiar (laughs) (laughs) you know the stat it was hanging on the wall for eight and a half years right yeah All right. So now you've been in a busy place. You've got to do some extra special team training and and move up. What was next from there? You know, I was getting to the point where I was becoming a senior man or a senior firefighter, I think is the proper term now. (laughs) Probably today, yeah. Uh, But getting moved out to a quiet station. And it was quite a shift for me to go from being busy all the time and having all of these extra specialties to sitting, waiting. And at the time, the station I was headed to, they were lucky if they had a call every one or two tours. So I was struggling a little bit with that adjustment. And I sat down at the computer and Googled, what can you do with a a fire department career? And upped, popped, take your master's in emergency management. Well, what is that? (laughs) So started researching that a little bit and signed up to do my master's degree and ended up doing it sitting in the the quiet fire hall while I was killing time. Google, eh? Google. Google is responsible for so much stuff. (laughs) Good and bad. (laughs) Exactly. Fair enough. Right. Okay. So you weren't really thinking emergency management. It wasn't even on your radar. And then all of a sudden. Didn't even know it existed. In fairness, it was quite a number of years ago before it it was really the profession that it is now uh, and ended up having to go out of the U.S. to do my master's degree. So did it through distance out of the U.S. and it's opened so many different doors now. It it is cool because I can remember sitting back. It would even been before 2011 fire, maybe like the 1998 Mitsu fire, thinking there's all of this emergency management stuff and it was pretty new and we hadn't really heard about it. And I can remember thinking, like, this is actually going to be a career. Someone's going to turn this into a job, not a job, dozens of different jobs. And so it has been fun to watch as it progressed. I didn't Google it. I didn't take a master's. But I still got to work in a lot of them and see a lot of them and, and see it kind of go to a career, right? So here's a good point. We'll bring in Sarah. My daughter's here with us as well. 
Sarah's taking emergency management at Nate. To be fair and be honest, that when she first said, you know, I want to get into, I think it was 911. No counselor. You want to be a counselor first. And I was like, oh, that's a long, hard life, right? Like, I, I'm happy we have to have counselors and good on them. But taking other people's problems on constantly is a big, hard life. Then she said, well, maybe I'll be a 911 operator. And I was like, wow, like that also seems like a tough job to me, right? <laughs> and and I mean, I talk to them all the time and I always feel bad because, you know, you're they're just sitting there in this room and then chaos is happening somewhere and they got to jump in the middle of it, like right in the middle of it. So I was like, well, we can hook you up with that and, and check it out. And then finally you got, hey, I want to take this emergency management class, which was a bit out of left field. But so it's kind of that proud moment where... Your mom and I are like, okay, this is awesome. She's going to join the family business. We finally, you know, everybody's in now. And away you went. And I will not, this is not a lie. I'm not just saying it because you're sitting here, Sue. You were the very first person that I thought of. Simply because I thought, you know, you'd had this career in fire and you'd gone up and, and we knew each other through all this. At that time, I don't I don't know if you were the chief yet or not, or if Tom had just talked about he's going to retire and there was going to be the yeah, process. Yeah, I think Tom was still here at that time. Yeah, and, and so you're the deputy here and, and you're working here. And I was like, you know, that's a great career. Look at how far that career can actually take you. And even farther than I thought at the time. And so I said, yeah, you, you should take that. It's super cool. And I think that, like, in our first few conversations, we were even talking about Sue, right? I would say, hey, remember Sue that came to Slave Lake? And, you know, now she's the, the big boss up here. And Sarah would. So I think that she kind of related you to her training and her course and, and all of those things. Now, sadly for her, she also gets her classmates going, oh, is your dad that guy on TV? And <laughs> and uh, I, I know your dad, the instructor's it's the saying instructors saying this. instructors <laughs> that get me the most. <laughs> Which is fine, most of them in a good way. And so that's all been kind of cool too. But for me, when I said, hey, Sue's gonna do a podcast, do you wanna come and get in on it? The look on Sarah's face was just like, oh man. This is it, right? In Western Canada, SEMA would be the top. Sorry, everyone else that thought you were the top. For our family, SEMA would be the top. And so here we are today. Yeah, I, you know, he has told me many stories about you and I. Oh, no. <laughs> good. They're usually good. But I definitely grew this big idolization for you and for um, the professionalism that you hold and what you guys do here. And this organization that you work for is really the thing that I see at the end of the tunnel, right? This is something that I want to work for. This is an organization or agency that I would like to be a part of or something similar. I like the work that you do and the reassurance that the school is giving me that I <laughs> picked the right thing. <laughs> so yeah, I was very excited to come and meet you. And I mean, I was pretty young when the fire happened, so I don't remember all you guys the way that everybody else does. But I know now, um, looking back, that Yes, the last name is not always a good thing, but the people that he knows <laughs> are absolutely a blessing that I would never have without him being my dad. So thank you for having me here. And, and I can't wait to learn more about you and learn from you. My pleasure. Happy that you could join. That worked out really so no well. Pressure. No pressure. Yeah, none at all. <laughs> none felt. And so for me, I think that that talk and, and the things that Sarah said and, and listening to you are what got me excited about it. And so I get all the time, like all the time in my career, people talking about women in the fire service. And I don't really get what it's all about. 
you know, if you went into my social media, you'd find hundreds of women that I follow and they follow me and, and we talk back and forth. And I mean, great mentors and, and role models out there for me. I'm used to having in the volunteer paid on call system, you know, lots of women in on all of that. I have a wife, I have a daughter and I just want the best for them and what they're doing. But then all of a sudden you hear these stories where it's not going good and it is bad and, and it's shocking, terribly shocking actually for me and probably a lot of people that are going to be listening to this, that it's still going on and that it's still a thing. And so I always think there's a couple of women sitting here. And, and so, you know, I see something about an all female pilot crew in this plane today. And I just think, well, that's super cool, right? I, it's a neat thing. It's a, and then I see, oh, you know, first woman fire chief in some city in the United States and, and then another thing and another thing. And, and it's like, it's all great and it's all good. But I guess I already know so many women that have moved up so high and done such a great job and that are mentors to me that it, it just doesn't seem that incredible. It just seems like, oh, that it's, it's normal now. Yeah. And I think it's getting more normal. I think there's still stuff that we have to do, right? If you look into fire services, they're one of the last fields that's still having a lot of these challenges and struggles. And for me, it was a long time ago. So I'm not as connected to what's happening now in the fire service. I'm more connected on the EM side, but certainly it wasn't without challenge. And I, I look back and I think the biggest thing that I learned was the perception and the difference between the pressure that I put on myself and the pressure that was actually real. So if you think of being a brand new rookie, it took me a lot of years to realize that every brand new rookie is afraid to make a mistake. They're afraid that they're going to screw something up at a fire and it's not going to work and you'll come across as the rookie didn't know how to do their job. The pressure that women tend to put on themselves is that you're not a rookie that did it. You're a female that made that that mistake. And in some circumstances, that pressure wasn't actually real. And until you figured that out and were able to move past it, I was putting so much additional stress on myself just by being afraid to make that mistake and screw it up as a female. On top of, sure. And then when you're already thinking like that, it's pretty easy to be intimidated when the 35-year captain walks in all gruff and rough and right and adds on to that that whole persona of oh this is really going to be harsh and really going to be crazy so for me you're living proof my daughter can go right to the top which is great I'm, I'm happy for her to see that i'm happy for the world to hear that and see that we're proud of you everyone that's out there and i really do think you know when i'm out there and I'll be honest, emergency management, not my favorite thing. Like I'm an ops guy. I like to be out there, right? You've seen me in action and we've talked about this before. I think, you know, putting me in here at one of these desks is be like jail for me, <laughs> but that's just because of the ops side. When I'm training it, when we're going through it and I can see people learning, I always use Daryl Black in the EM world as my guy and uh, planning. Planning is this weird EM thing that no one really understands except the planners who are great at it. And then one day I just said, like, I'm at this course and I'm like, I've had enough. I know planning is not like building a neighborhood, but I don't actually know what it is. I've taken dozens of these courses. I've been at dozens of disasters and things going on, and I still don't have a clue. And so we kind of stopped full stop on the course and we go through the, the planning function. And I finally got it. 
is like, ah, all these pieces fit together and I totally get what's going on. No, I just call him the paperwork nerd. But at the end of the day, <laughs> it, it's this really important piece that he took the time out to explain to me. And so, you know, for me, when I look at the chief of SEMA, and we know that we are just through COVID, right? Well, it's still going on, right? We've been a year and a half of brutal, brutal times. I look back and think back to the floods, you know, 2013, I, and some of the storms and things that happened in the city. And the map's not up today, but having a 30-foot-tall map of all the construction and police cars and fire trucks and ambulances cruising around the city, this place always, like, shocks you back into knowing that no matter what you're doing, there's a million other things going on all around you. And it all kind of funnels up to emergency management. So n no pressure, but you're in one of the biggest cities in the country running the emergency management part. It's incredible. It's incredibly scary. It's incredibly cool. I'm sure it's nerve wracking some days and other times you get a chance to also be human and hang out and, and have some cool times around here. But you know, that always that potential of it being crazy. And I think exactly what you described is what I love. And it's what I love about this job that I never know coming in one day, are we going to be dealing with COVID? Or are we going to have a quiet day? Or is it going to be a billion dollar hailstorm that'll roll through the city? You just don't know those things coming in. And I've been so fortunate. The team that we have in SEMA is absolutely incredible. So as much as happening in the background and there's so many different pieces, the team here has got it. And you know you can just sort of surf over the top of it and try to take away the political barriers for them and try to deal with some of the more administrative type tasks that are challenging when we have to deal with states of local emergency or municipal emergency plans. But the, the team here has got it. And it's so satisfying to know that. And, and I don't look at... I'm not worried to screw up for Calgary. I'm worried to screw up for the team that we have here because it's, I look at my role as to support them. And we have an agency of 60 different agency members here. My job is that they can do their job. So I, I look at it from <laughs> yeah. that lens. They're really the frontline delivery. And if I'm doing my job right, all of their barriers are taken away to deliver their service when something happens. Right. And, and so I actually said to Kirsten and Sarah, like when, you know, when we tour around after and everything, like look at the, the name tags on the desks around here, the agency name tags, right? Because it is, it's really, we work in small emergency operation centers and we work in small communities and there's maybe 10 people trying to do everything. And then you see this place and it's humming, right? There's just like, there's murmurs everywhere and, and you can hear everything's going on. And I can't even guess how many phone lines come in here and, and different uh, radio channels and all of the things that are going on. And so to me, this is like, you know, you're Sarah and you're taking this in school and you could be anyone, right? Across this country, you're taking emergency management and the ultimate goal is to be part of something like this. The floods in 2013, we got to stop at the Provincial Operations Center and meet with the Tiger teams. And, and everyone's just like, I don't understand why you stopped in. And we're like, we had to stop in. We had to know. We had to see it with our own eyes, what it's like to run thousands of different people across the province doing crazy amounts of things and how it's all coordinated. Like we just, we almost felt like we didn't have a choice. We had to stop in and see what it's like. Organized chaos, right? Uh, it would be one thing. It, and you're right, just like so many great people. And kind of the best at 
at their job, at their piece. Right? Yeah, I wish the public could see it. I think they would be a lot calmer that they were taken care of and that the city had their back. If they could see these rooms in action, they could see the number of people that were truly trying to make it better in a different way. And I think that's why COVID has been so unique. Because we've had to move to the virtual environment, we've lost the the hum of that room. The agency is still there, but they're online in a Teams meeting, and it's a very, very different feeling to try to coordinate it that way. They're all over the city. They're all over Alberta. It could be anywhere calling in and, and talking. So to me, we're sitting in the boardroom. I look down the hallway. I got to tell this story because it's one of my favorite. It's just like the typical firefighter. You were in here. You were the deputy, I think, at that point. And I brought some bunch of firefighters from Slave Lake, and you're nice enough to show us around. And I was asking about the CFD belt buckles. And you're like, oh, yeah. And, And I said, there's different kinds. Like, there's silver, there's gold. What does it mean? And we're just talking about it. And next thing you know, you and I are trading belt buckles right there in the hallway. And the staff here are walking by looking at us like we're just a pair of idiots out in the hallway, <laughs> right? We're both just like, oh, we're firefighters trading belt buckles. What's the problem here? Carry on, right? I must have told that story a hundred times to different people. And it's always like after I've traded a challenge coin or a hat or a patch or a, right, a story about doing these kinds of things. And so being in here for me, you still haven't told me where they hide the pool. I, I, I'll find it <laughs> yeah. somewhere. In I'm here. not ever allowed to release that. <laughs> that is secret information. <laughs> Been asking that for years as I come here. But this really is a great facility. Yeah, it is. We're, we're lucky. But as I said before, it's. I feel like we could pick this team up and move it into any facility and they would still be able to do the the work and, and make an incredible difference. And we're fortunate that we have this. It's an absolutely state-of-the-art facility and I know organizations around the country are jealous but it's the people that make the huge difference and you do I I mean task force works with you guys as well and you send those what did they just get back from the Yukon I think they'll be back in a few hours okay they're coming back from the Yukon you know they were up helped us in 2011 in Slave Lake they were up in 2016 working in Fort McMurray they're up in 2019 in I high level and you know we just got to run into them all over the place i think ken mcmullen and i see each other more on the road than we ever did in calgary right (laughs) you're right and you know what we have firefighters that always tell us that too right you could have the best trucks you could have the best fire hall you could have the best equipment you could have but at the end of the day firefighters use all that to do the work and so you're saying the same thing about the emergency management people which is awesome so that leads me to this sarah's sitting right here There's people just like her all across the country going to universities and colleges all across the country that all want to work in emergency management, right? So no pressure. You got one of the top jobs in the entire country (laughs) in this field. What advice are you going to give them? I I think the advice would be threefold. And I was mentored by Tom Sampson, and he always does everything in threes. So I feel this need (laughs) to figure out what the three different pieces would be. But number one, it's never close a door before somebody closes it for you. And I think of the number of times in my life that I've thought, I'm exactly where I'm going to be when I retire. And something happens and there's suddenly an opportunity in front of you. And if when I started with fire, if, if somebody had said to me, you'd be one day sitting at the as the chief in SEMA, I would have thought you were totally nuts. Like there is just no way that that's happening. And I would say, don't close the doors. Open every door you can and take every single opportunity you can. Secondly, I would say attitude is so much more important than anything else you could bring to the table. I would rather hire somebody that had 
little to no emergency management experience, but had a, a relationship-focused attitude, a can-do attitude, and was going to bring the right energy into the room every single time. So I would say keep the good attitude. <laughs> I, I, I haven't known you very long, but I can yeah. see that it's there. And thirdly, I would say get involved and get involved in things like task force. And I'm, I'm biased with task force. There's no question. So we'll just, yeah. we'll just say that. <laughs> but I, I look at the connections that you can make through that and the doors that it opens for you and the folks. It's very rare now to go across anywhere in Southern Alberta where we don't have some kind of connection because of task force. So I would say look for those opportunities that scare you. And if you find one of those, jump into it. And on the same token, if you find you're not learning and you're not afraid of what you're doing, you're not doing the right thing and it's time to find a different challenge. That's awesome. Tom would be proud that I got three. He was a, yeah, he was right. yeah, I'll have to get a hold of him and tell him you got to listen to this one. It's the teacher and the student. And now the student becomes the teacher. I love it. It's all great stuff. Sarah, can you think of anything that you would ask? Again, no pressure because she's just the top <laughs> you know, there's there's so so many things, and I'm sure I'll come back to you a billion times with with so many. I don't know if I have it's like hard to one, pick one thing. Yeah. yeah, as you sit here looking <laughs> like, at the biggest emergency operations yeah. center you can ever imagine. There's um, so many. I mean, what you just said, I think, are so important, and I love that those are the things that you just brought to the table because I think that they align with some of the things that we've talked about before. Some of the things that my dad has talked about on the podcast before. And it's just awesome to look at how familiar, but how different these two careers and professionalism is and how they go together. So I'm just excited to see how that's going to go for me. And they, they are very similar. There's no question. I think we couldn't do what we do in emergency management without the fire department and Absolutely. without being able to work with them and have a close relationship. And some of that is just the attitudes. Right. What did you say around 60 agencies, member agencies? So 60. Yeah. I mean, and they're all kind of similar and all related. And I tell the story all the time about walking into the Fort McMurray Emergency Operations Center and we were just dropping off a structure protection trailer. And then all of a sudden I walked in there and I knew the ACO gas guy and I knew the guy from AHS that does all the disasters. And I knew the ops guy, the ops chief from Fort Mac because I'd taught with him before. And like all of a sudden I walk into this room expecting to know nobody and I probably knew 10 people. Later on in the emergency, I probably knew 90% of the people there. And so it is, it's just one big family, right? And just like fire is, just like the police are, just like AHS is, so is the emergency management world. And as it turns into more and more of a career and more and more of a stream with more and more jobs, it just gets bigger and, and cooler. So I'm excited. And Sarah helps me out all the time with different, so it's kind of, again, that student teacher thing. I'm trying to panic and find out who I can ask to get help with Sarah's homework so I can help her. And, and now I'm phoning her up saying, hey, I got this question about ESS, right? And it's like, oh, yeah, we just took that last semester. I got you. Here's some you know, articles and here's some things to think about, which I find super cool, right? I know that I can't know everything, but I've always prided myself on knowing people that know everything. And it's right. one of the things that makes emergency management so cool. Like you think of people from across the country at incidents, we'll share whatever we have instantly. There's no ownership on it. There's no, it's this big collaborative effort to get somebody what they need when something's happening if they don't have it. 
For sure. And, and I mean, so friends with lots of task force people and you get to see them travel around the country and the United States doing different exercises and helping at different disasters and all of these cool things. You know, I've, I've been here quite a few times now, always on tours, always, you know, that future learning. What are we going to today at work? I left Chestermere Fire Hall and, and they were said, well, where are you going? I said, oh, I'm going up to SEMA. Well, can we come? <laughs> I said, well, no, we'll hook something up later. But, you know, it's just cool to be part of it and, and to move it along. You know, who would have guessed all of those years ago in Slave Lake when uh, you decided to help out your good friends that were in the fire department on our old truck? And, you know, how that would all kind of turn out. And and I remember so much fencing, <laughs> so much fencing. And I, I didn't think fencing would somehow turn itself into this career. I must have told the story 200 times about Calgary and Edmonton going toe-to-toe on security fencing <laughs> and trying to see literally down to the point where there's like spies going back and forth to say, how are they doing that faster than us? How are those? <laughs> like only firefighters would think of, you know, we have to win this security fencing war, yeah. you know, like who, who does that? Right. Yeah. And so, you know, those things turn into so many other things. And so one of my favorite slave lake stories, and that's a terrible thing that happened and we all got together for a terrible thing, but we got through it and, Later on, once the the old truck got fixed up and and you guys brought it back, we were all excited because we said, I think it was Danny, Tim Manu, Danny Freeman, Tim Manu, and Scott, eh, that kind of were the... I think so. And I think Jody Grisdale was involved in that, yeah. And yourself. And and, I had very little on the the actual... (laughs) We we (laughs) wanted some of you to come (laughs) to Slave Lake and be part of, we're going to put it in the parade. So it was July, just after the fire, and and we're going to put it in the parade. We couldn't get the time off. There was a problem getting the time off. And so one of the firefighters, captains in Slave Lake, Terry Tonsi, phoned up his boss at Atco Electric, who just happened to be Nancy Sutherland, and said, geez, it'd be awesome if we could get these firefighters (laughs) to to Slave Lake. And so you remember that day? I do. I I didn't get to go, but I remember them heading up there. and they got uh, to fly in. Just so good that they were able to be there. They put so much work into that truck and had so much pride. fun. How does that happen, right? And again, that's all those connections you're talking about and all of those things where it all just works out because somebody knows somebody who knows somebody that that goes through okay so you're at the top you're in the emergency world and you're at the top what's next for sue henry oh my gosh and you know i i don't know the answer to that i'd love to answer that i'm going to take over the world but i don't really know what (laughs) i'm going to read that on cnn one day that's going to be the headline i was like what (laughs) yeah and if i look i you know i've only been in this role uh, since december and i'm still learning in it and the the pandemic has been so challenging for even understanding or remembering what this role looked like prior to a pandemic so I, i think for right now it's still figuring this out and then it's taking over the world (laughs) one step at a time right you'll get some of your planners behind you some logistics i'm sure it'll take a few people to figure this out yeah and if anyone can they'll be able to figure it out (laughs) so one other thing that i want to trail i want to head down is you've obviously had some incredible mentors as you went through you've been an incredible mentor to lots of people as you go through what are the challenges in that so now you're you're at the top like you know today's top in emergency management in calgary you're at the top what kind of pressures is there to try and get all those things that are in your brain out to all the people that work for you? 
Yeah, and that's an interesting question because it's certainly the pressure is more about not letting the mentors down. I was able to follow Tom Sampson in this job and he did an incredible amount for the the industry and for the field and he got everything set up and I look now and go, oh my God, don't screw it up. <laughs> like don't be the one that follows him and, and screws me. up the, <laughs> the agency. So it's figuring out how to help keep moving it forward, but honoring the past and honoring the effort that everyone has put into it, but still making room for for the next generation. I'm the interim future of SEMA, but there's so much more work to do. There's going to be a totally different structure, a totally different everything if you look 20 years down the road. And my job is to set that up for somebody and set that up without screwing it up. Right. Yeah, no pressure. Yeah, so no pressure. We, we were talking yeah. the other day about the Jetsons, right? And they're flying around and everyone used to make fun of this cartoon. It's an old cartoon, so you don't know what I'm talking about. But <laughs> who knows? We could be just days away from cars flying around, right? We could be just days away from someone teleporting something here or there. And So to me, on the fire side, that's scary. That's just the fire side. One of 60 agencies, right? And so all 60 of those agencies are going to funnel in here and say, hey, we have this issue. We have this thing. And so you're right. I, yeah, I wouldn't want to be you. That seems like. Yeah, you even look, you know, when the pandemic started, we I thought, okay, this is going to be a couple months. Okay, we'll have this done by Christmas. And we're now, what, 19 months into this and, and we're still going strong. So even in our own field, we haven't figured out exactly how intricate something is going to be. Yeah, yeah, fair enough. So you've had so much success. You, you know, you did the wildland thing. You started in firefighting. You got to be a hazmat technician. You moved up through that. You Googled what to do next. And, yeah. <laughs> and it's a good lesson in there somewhere for someone that's trying to figure it out. Right? You get into this job, this field, and you take it all the way to the top. What are some of your favorite moments in all that? Oh my goodness. There are so many different, different favorite moments. And if I picked, you know, just sort of randomly, if I picked back to wildfire days, I can think of working a a wildfire in Telegraph Creek, which is in Northern BC and just having the chance to, to live and work in an indigenous community. We'd go out and fight the fire and they would catch fish in the river and the, the women would be making fresh food when you came home and just this sense of pride that somebody was coming to help. And if I go back to uh, what I would call CFD days, it's more the relationships. I can't pick out a particular incident that stands out so much more than another one because there were so many good experiences, but I can pick out people and I can pick out people that paved the way for me or they opened doors for me or taught me things about myself that I didn't see. So that would be the CFD side. And then if I think of the the SEMA side, it, it's again hard to pick out we're in the disaster capital of Canada, so it, it's not back to disaster moments. And I, I think I'm most proud that I haven't screwed it up yet, that it's it's eight months into taking over for Tom and we're, we're still okay so far. <laughs> he hasn't showed up at the door. And uh, no, he still shows up at the oh, door quite regularly. <laughs> we let him in for coffee, yeah, and, yeah. but it's a little weird for him to come in on an escort pass now. So I bet. Yeah, yeah. It was even weird for me, right? It's We, we go to his place there for a call and it was weird for me. I'm, I mean, used to him being the big boss and you know just not very long and then we're into the backyard and it's just two guys talking again right so yeah. i can see how that's kind of nerve-wracking and cool at the same time last thing i want to talk about okay. where's em going what, what do you see like what's the next big things you help set the tone here 
right? Yeah. And so to me, I can remember back, the org chart used to be pretty simple. It was finance, logistics, planning, ops, and the dem, right? Way back when I started. Now I look at it, it's a pretty complex org chart. There's a lot of things going on. And so what's what are some changes we're going to see? You know, I think, again, a very interesting question, because I think we've always done things a bit different at at SEMA, and we've never followed a traditional ICS structure for our emergency operations center. And the biggest focus to me is our situational awareness and figuring out how do we get ahead of what I would call disaster risk reduction, and how do we figure out if we can act an hour before something occurs or if we can act that much faster when it's occurring, that the amount of money and the amount of pain that we'll save for citizens is absolutely incredible. You know, you look back to our hailstorm, $1.4 billion of damage in the city of Calgary last summer. That is huge. What can we do on the front end to bring that disaster risk down, to understand it's happening when it is happening faster and respond quicker to it in a more coordinated fashion with not just the traditional resources we would see, not just the fire police and EMS, but can our parks crews do something different? Can our rec crews be involved? So it's that whole concept of how do we add value? How do we bring down disaster risk? And how do we make sure that our our decisions aren't just based on something that's already happened? Wow. Get ahead, stay ahead. When we first moved down here, we, we had a big storm. I think it was like the only storm of the whole summer, right? Right when we first came down. And and someone was saying, uh, oh, look at the planes are out there. They must be seeding. And I was like, what kind of weird farming thing is happening here now that I don't <laughs> I don't remember plane seeding, but we're from the north. It's it could be happening. What what are what are you talking about? And they're like, no, no, they're seeding so that the hail gets out of the cloud or whatever. I don't even know what I'm talking about. And, it's for hail. And it was and it was so so weird. Like it's just this discussion that we've never had in the north. I didn't really know what they were talking about. And and I did find it odd that, you know, these huge clouds that we would be terrified of at home for wildfire and things like that. And there's these planes, little planes darting in and out of there and and doing all this weird things. And and so I guess that's part of this get ahead, stay ahead you're talking about. And Yeah, and I don't want that job. Definitely don't want that job. I would barf. But it's even bigger in terms of how do we build our communities so that when those storms do come through, we're not getting the damage that we're seeing. We know we can't stop every single disaster from happening, but how do we plan for it on the front end, whether it's as simple as insurance, whether it's simple as changing the materials we're building the houses out of or changing the storm systems. There's there's just so much work we can do to figure out how to do that. And this really is a place where like hail, we drive around on the way here, we're like, look at that car. Yeah. Like oh, yeah. it was beat, right? And uh and you see the houses, so we drive around on Stony and see some of the houses that are still being repaired, and and that's just that. Then there's flooding, and all the work that they're doing around the city to, to kind of cut down on the flooding and the the damage there, and you know then we have all those other things that impact everything. And so I love that that's kind of where it's going next, right? Is how how do we stop it before it happens? How do we know sooner that it's going to happen? You hear them talking all the time about tornado warnings, right? So they're kind of coming like five minutes before the tornado or two minutes before the tornado. And how do we make that two days or two hours before? Exactly. So you got this all written down, Sarah, because there's a test later. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so thanks for having us today. 
This has been awesome. Before I cut it off, anything else you want to say to the EM world, to the fire world, to Tom Sampson? Oh, well, if I'm saying to the mentors, I would say uh, (laughs) thank you to Tom Sampson and Danny Freeman. They were the two biggest impacts uh, on my life and on my career. And Bear Beauty's there um, for sure. Yeah. Yeah, good guys. Okay, thanks, Sue. Appreciate it. Thank you. That's uh, episode 22, Growing Up Fire. Thanks for listening to Growing Up Fire today. Follow me on Instagram at Chief Coots to comment or send questions. We appreciate your support.